In my talk today, first I will briefly talk about the spirit of metta. And then I will talk about practicing metta for difficult persons. I think it will be good to be well prepared because soon, tomorrow, you will be advised to cultivate metta for a difficult person, for those who have come for the second retreat. So when we engage in the cultivation of loving-kindness, practicing metta, it is always good to remind ourselves of the spirit of metta. And here are a few descriptions of what metta is or what it is not, or what a true metta attitude is. My first and main teacher here in Burma is Sayado Ujanaka, Chani Sayado, and he says, love, in the sense of worldly love, love is attachment and metta is detachment. But of course we must understand that this detachment is not kind of a cold, detached love. It's not indifference. On the contrary, this metta love is full of warmth. It's full of friendliness, full of kindness. But this kind of metta love, as you know by now, is completely free from the burning fires of the defilements whether that be lust, desire, craving, attachment, or whether it be aversion, anger, enmity, or ill will. <clears throat> then some other definitions. Metta, it is firm, but not grasping. It is unshakable, but not tied down. It is gentle and not hard. It is helpful, but not interfering. It is dignified, but not proud. It is active, not passive. Or the last, second last, Universal love is released without any restrictions. It gives calm, peace, and unity. Or one more illustration of what metta is, a metta attitude is, comes from a 12-year-old girl living in Switzerland. Her name is Tanya, and when she was one year old, she needed to have a liver transplantation, which means since the age of one year, she is living with the liver of somebody else. So 11 years with somebody else's liver already. And 
I assume she has never practiced meditation, metta meditation, but she had said, my biggest wish is, is that my family and all the people I love stay healthy and well forever. I know that this is not possible, but I wish it anyway. Yeah, that's the main point, to wish it anyway, regardless of the result, regardless of the external circumstances, situations, regardless of our expectations or hopes. So for the meditators who have come for the second Metta retreat, Sayado or we have not yet given you the instructions to cultivate Metta for a difficult person or for a person you hate or an enemy. But I'm sure, and some of you have related that in the interview, already until now you have encountered some difficulties with cultivating metta. Maybe even while cultivating metta to a dear person, you may have remembered a situation which was difficult and where you were getting irritated or even upset or angry at this person. Or maybe it was difficult and challenging because a difficult person came up in your mind and sucking you in. Or maybe a fellow meditator has triggered some irritation or aversion to arise. And this is or can be challenging because the habitual reaction is normally one is normally not a very friendly one. As we know, it triggers any kind of dosa, subtle or strong. So therefore, we should clearly understand that we develop metta for another person or taking that other person as the object for our metta meditation so, seeing that person as a human being, a human being just like you and me. So, to see this other person as a human being who also wants to be healthy, happy, and peaceful, just like me. So, this means that we should always try to see our shared humanity. We are all human beings, and this is our common ground. And we can hear it time and again. Many religious leaders tell us to see our fellow human beings as our sisters or as our brothers. So to see all of humanity as one big family. 
When I started to learn Burmese, that was many, many years ago, I made a very interesting discovery. When addressing another person in Burmese, one doesn't use the word like you, or in German, see, or the do. There exists such a word, but is very seldom used. So the term one addresses to another person is always dependent on the relationship one has to them, or you know, if one, whether one is the same age, or if it, the person is a bit older or younger, or very much older or very young. And so one, address, one uses terms like auntie for a person who could be your aunt, or a person who could be your elder brother. You address this person as elder brother, a go or a young person who could be your daughter, you would address her as Dami, daughter, or even Kale, child, or a person who could be your grandmother, this would be Apua, grandmother, Apu, grandfather. And for me, it was a bit strange <laughs> to address you know, any stranger, a person I've never met before, like in a shop, a young girl who is filling up the, uh, the pasta uh, or the lapé. So to address her as the me or Kale, it, it was like too strange, but you know, with Mimi, and she, of course, just using it all the time. I see how, how normal that is. Or, you know, an elderly lady, auntie. I mean, she's not related to me, nor to Mimi. But, yeah, the term of address is auntie. So, then here in Burma... Everybody is just part of the big family. It's auntie or apua, grandmother or kale or brother, sister, and so on. So, yeah, everybody in Burma becomes just one big family. Every uh, human being is part of this big family. And of course, one can extend it to other countries, to the whole world. So now let's go back to deal with <clears throat> the difficult person. Because as I said, that's always an issue that comes up in our meta-meditation practice. And so the habitual reaction is to put uh, this person in the box of difficult person, or enemy, hated person. And by doing that, one reduces this person to just one particular aspect. So one connects this person with a certain harmful, unwholesome deed, and then 
this person and that harmful deed become inseparable. It's like one entity. But we can and we should never reduce a person on a particular deed or to a certain harmful action. This is never the whole person. This is never the whole picture. You know, this person who might be a difficult person for us, he might be a very affectionate father to his children. Or the neighbor who has talked behind our back might be a very friendly salesman. So we should understand that that person is always more than just a particular harmful act. So again, turning the mind around, can we see the human being in this person? The human being that is not different from me. The human being that has the same wishes and hopes, the same fears and sorrows. So can we see our shared humanity? A trick that might help us see the human being and not the cruel murderer is to visualize this person completely naked, without any clothes. So a person completely naked without any clothes seems to be less seems to be more vulnerable, seems to be less protected. And so this helps to see the fragile human being that we are all. And then this helps to connect on the level of the heart. At this place, I think it's very helpful and important to state it again. With the practice of loving-kindness, we do not approve of an unwholesome or a harmful deed that somebody has done. So when somebody has, let's say, emotionally hurt us or somebody else, or if that person has even inflicted injuries or tortured us or others, with the practice of metta, we do not approve of that deed. It's not that we say, yeah, yeah, that was all right or correct or justified. But trying to dwell in metta, we try not to react with hatred or aversion. So we try not to close our heart completely for this person. And if we are able to dwell in metta, then we can actually see more clearly because we do not get into the trap of anger or aversion. And so as a result, then we do not see the other person only through the lens of anger or ill will. But we can simply see this other person as another human being who also wants happiness 
like me, who also doesn't want suffering, like me. So this is also a reason why we start our cultivation of loving-kindness with ourselves, wishing well uh, to ourselves, to see and understand that this wish to be happy, to be content, to be peaceful, to be at ease, that this wish, wish is so deeply rooted in our heart and mind. And with that we come to understand that it's not different in other people, in other living beings. To see this is the common ground. You know, there is no doubt that the cruelty or the meanness or the torture, you know, that any physical or emotional hurt that they are blameworthy. You know, these acts are not virtuous. They are to be condemned because they lack any um, ethical integrity. And so this means we still, or we still can take action. We still, we still should take action where, where it's necessary, <coughs> appropriate actions to deal with the person or the situation. To say it again, dwelling in metta does not mean to simply stay passive and endure anything that is uh, done to us. But is it possible to see the other person just as another human being who seeks happiness who wants to avoid suffering, just like me. So is it possible to see the other person apart from her or his deed? So can we separate that, the person as a human being and then this particular action that the person did? I think that's the great difficulty. In regard to dwelling in thoughts of, of anger, aversion, nurturing thoughts of ill will, Bhantiji, Bhantigunaratna, has said very bluntly, hatred is a thoughtless way of wasting one's energy. I'm sure you have all heard stories of great harm and violence, harm and violence that has been done to others or maybe that has been done to you. The following story happened 20 years ago in Switzerland. At that time, a school teacher was shot by the father of one of his students. And the student was a girl of 13 years and she came from an Alban Muslim family. But this girl, she suffered from de depression 
and she was about to commit suicide. And the teacher uh, could save her, rescued her in the last minute before she was going to jump off a bridge. But then the father of that girl got very angry with the teacher because he thought that the teacher had an affair with his daughter. And that's why a few days later, the father of the girl shot the teacher on his way back home. Now the teacher had been married and his wife was pregnant with the second child. So the wife could have had a good reason to be angry with the murderer of her husband. She could have fallen into resentment, into ill will, anger, and grief. She could have drowned in her big grief and great loss. But the wife, she chose, she decided to choose the path of love choosing it for her own sake and also for the sake of her children. Twelve years after the loss of her husband, she wrote a book in which she described the struggles and her deep inner transformation. She even came to a place where she could say, that everything that had happened in her life was good in the way it had happened. In other words, she came to a full acceptance of the unfolding of her life. And in one passage in this book she wrote, To make sure that my children did not suffer from traumatic reactions, each kind word and each smile was important. Each minute of being fully present was important. It was important whether I took a breath based on anger or on love. It was so much more important to watch a little bird with the children than to complain about the terrible things that happened in the past. So choosing the path of love, she found inner peace. And she could pass that on to her children. When hearing such a story, we might think that such a noble behavior, not to give in to resentment or anger, that such noble behavior is, well, a nice idea, but not really applicable or not something realistic to apply in one's life. Or we might think that only highly realized beings are capable of such a noble behavior. However, this is not true. There have been, and there, are, and there are still nowadays, many, many ordinary, so-called ordinary people 
who are capable to manifest such noble behavior, like the wife of the teacher and other people we have already mentioned in our Dhamma talks. I want to mention two other quite ordinary people who took the Buddha's advice to heart. You may have heard the stories of Tibetan nuns and monks in Chinese prisons. Many of them underwent the most atrocious forms of torture, and still their heart, their mind, did not respond with anger or hatred, but still reacting with kindness and compassion even towards their torturers. So they had developed such pure and powerful metta that the kindness, the compassion were the only uh, response to the cruel actions taken against them. One of these Tibetan refugees, quite an ordinary person, was in a Chinese prison for 18 years, undergoing many, many, many hardships, tortures. So finally, he was able to escape and uh, escape to India. He went to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama um, is residing, and he could meet the Dalai Lama, and he told him what had happened, what he underwent uh, during these years in prison. And the refugee said that during these years in prison that he had encountered just a few dangers during these 18 years in prison. And the Dalai Lama then assumed that these dangers were external dangers, you know, threats to his life. But then the refugee said that these moments of dangers were the, mo were the moments when he was afraid of losing his compassion towards the Chinese, that he was uh, afraid to become, to become caught up with anger towards the Chinese or the torturers. It still touches me so deeply whenever I tell this story, and I've already told it many, many times. Here is another person who came to the conclusion that love, meta-love, is the only helpful and beneficial answer to hatred. It is Eddie Hillesum, who lived in Holland during the Second World War. She was a young Jewish artist and writer. She was not really a religious person. Actually, she lived quite a bohemian life. During that time, all the Jews had to wear the yellow star that marked them as Jews. 
And the Jews, they had really a very hard time. They suffered a great deal of fear, of terror, of uncertainty. And during that time, Etty wrote many letters to her friends. And it is through these letters that we know about her, because she died in one of the concentration camps. And in these letters, she asked herself, what can we do? What is the answer to all the hatred, the fear, and the violence? And she finally came to the realization that the victory belonged to others, to the Nazi, when she reacted with hatred and fear. And it became clear to her that the only answer was love. When she could answer their hatred with love, the victory was hers. A very practical application of loving-kindness is mentioned by the Buddha in one of his discourses. It's a sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya. There the Buddha gives quite a simple, straightforward advice. Maybe not so easy to put it into practice. So the Buddha says, If you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving-kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed. Some people might see the practice of metta-meditation as a rather abstract way, for example, as this general wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings. Or people might see it as a formal meditation in which one is completely absorbed in an immeasurable and boundless field of loving-kindness. But here in this passage from that sutta, we see quite a simple and specific approach to the metta-practice. The purification of grudges and of any other mental states based on dosa. So this purification happens by way of strengthening the opposite. And we know that the opposite of dosa is metta, loving-kindness. So then, in our practice, we acknowledge that a grudge has arisen, or any kind of anger, aversion, ill will, which means we acknowledge it, not pushing it away. It's all, we, not, we do not suppress it. We acknowledge it in a friendly way. But then, doing the metta practice, we simply bring back the attention to the metta, we simply continue to cultivate loving-kindness in order to strengthen the metta, 
to make it really powerful and strong. So acknowledging the grudge or the defilement is like saying, okay, but not now. And by returning to the cultivation of metta, we make it stronger, more powerful. And the stronger our metta becomes, the less room is there for the defilements to arise. Or the stronger the metta is, the more easily it can overpower a grudge or any other defilement. So when we have established a powerful field of metta, then a grudge has simply no opportunity to arise. So when there is a strong habit of cultivating metta, of living with kindness and friendliness, then ill will or anger simply does not find a base to grow, to manifest. You know, it's like planting a seed on a concrete slab out in the sun. There is simply no way that the seed will start to grow. So by cultivating metta, we accomplish two things. On the one hand, it's the strengthening of the metta, making kindness, friendliness, benevolent, stronger, more powerful, like really <clears throat> creating a new habit of dwelling in a beneficial uh, attitude of the heart and the mind. And at the same time, by doing so, <coughs> it weakens and counteracts its opposite, Dosa, all forms of anger, aversion, ill will, resentment, irritation, or holding a grudge. So either Dosa has no way to manifest, to arise into this powerful field of metta, or if it still does, the metta is strong enough to dissolve the Dosa immediately or within a short time. So that's why the Buddha gave this advice. If you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving kindness towards that person. Thus the grudge towards that person can be removed. It is a characteristic of the Buddha's teaching that the presence of a grudge or any form of dosa is seen to be a problem or a challenge for the subject rather than of the object. So the grudge, you know, is rather a problem for the person who holds the grudge and not for the person towards whom the grudge is directed because and by now you know that very well the metta practice is not about doing something to change the other person it's rather 
to change oneself. It's rather to transform one's own heart and mind. So looking from a Buddhist perspective, the reason for holding a grudge is completely irrelevant. Whether it's justified or not, right or wrong, the holding of a grudge or any form of dosa is first of all harming oneself, doing damage to oneself. In this verse, or passage from the Sutta where the Buddha says, um, if you give birth to a grudge, of course you can substitute this with if you give birth to anger or frustration or ill will or enmity to any, uh, replacing it with any of the other unwholesome mental states. Because a grudge or hatred, that's a toxic and unhealthy mental state. And these mental states, they are actually like poison for the heart and the mind. But these unhealthy and toxic thoughts or emotions, they are nurtured and kept alive by repetitive thoughts of directing a, a grudge towards somebody else, of being angry at another person. You know, it's like that anger-eating demon. I mentioned the story of this anger-eating demon in the first uh, retreat. So nurturing a grudge or anger towards another person is actually like drinking poison oneself and then hoping that the other person would die of it. Another person who was able to replace hatred with loving-kindness was Eva Kaur. She survived um, the concentration camp in Auschwitz during the Second World War, but the rest of her family all died. And for her, forgiveness was an important step to live in peace. And she said, I firmly believe that every person has the right to live without the pain of the past. Most of the people have a big problem with forgiveness because society asks for revenge. We have to respect the victims and acknowledge their painful memories. But I always ask myself if my beloved ones, who have all died, really want that I live with hatred and rage for the rest of my life. I do the practice of forgiveness for myself. Forgiveness is an act of healing myself, which gives me a lot of power. I call it a miraculous remedy. It does not cost anything. It works. 
and there are no harmful side effects. So the Buddha treats a grudge or hatred, ill will, as an, as an affliction that needs to be healed for the sake of our own well-being. And the antidote for the, or the medicine is loving-kindness, metta, and preferably in massive doses. So seen in this light, loving-kindness always also includes forgiveness. When there is pure and genuine metta for a difficult person or an enemy, then there is also forgiveness. Now I want to relate another encounter with a metta being whose strong metta had made a deep and lasting impression on me. I had related the story with Daminya Sayadaw, this Metta Sayadaw. So this is about Venerable Mahagosananda. He was a Cambodian monk. He had also been the supreme Buddhist patriarch of Cambodia. And during the time of the regime of the Khmer Rouge with Pol Pot, killing fields, he was able to uh, flee, go to Thailand, where he visited many, many um, refugee camps where thousands of Cambodian refugees lived. So, you know, after that he became a very active peace activist. And he was also a revered meditation master. So the first encounter I had that was about in 1997, more than 20 years ago, at that time I was staying at the Chamyayeta Meditation Center in Mobi, a bit north of Yangon. And at that time I had just started to learn Burmese I was trying to improve my Burmese. And one day, from the center in Yangon, they called and said that a foreign monk would come visit in Mobi, and that all the meditators, Burmese and foreign meditators alike, should gather in the meditation hall. Okay, that was done, but they couldn't say who it was or from which country he was. So when the car arrived, um, it was Venerable Mahagosananda who got out of the car and he was going to give a Dhamma talk to all the meditators. But of course, he was going to give this talk in English. And Sayadaw Uindaka was the abbot at that time in Mobi. And so then he said, Okay, Do Ariyanyani, you translate from English to Burmese. And my heart start, started pounding. Because at that time, 
I was able to understand more the Burmese, but to talk it myself was much more difficult. And then to, to translate the talk by this famous monk, Venerable Mahagosananda, it was like, oh, I wanted to sink into the earth and just disappear. But there was no other person who could have done, who could have done it. So as I said, pounding, 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 pounding. And all the meditators were gathered in the hall. When Mahakosananda sat on the Dhamma seat, I sat just next to him. And luckily, I had my backup. I had Mimi um, next to me who would help me if I needed help. And I needed help. So, you know, Saido Uindaka then told the Burmese yogi, yogis who this monk was, sitting there. I was lucky I could sit because my knees were trembling. <laughs> my heart was pounding. And then Venerable Mahagosananda started with reciting the Namotasa three times. And, you know, the way we do it, Namo tasa bhagavato, and so on. And when he had finished the three repetitions, I just started <laughs> to translate it into the Burmese way of pronouncing the Pali, which is Namo tata bhagavato arahato tamma tambo tata three times. And what happened in that time when I was reciting that all the pounding of my heart, my nervousness, just quieted down. Boom. And by the time I had finished reciting the Namotasa, I was in the most peaceful and happy state. I couldn't believe it. But there I was, and okay. And then he started talking about feeling, you know, you, you are what you, what you eat, like what kind of feelings. And I did my best. Sometimes Mimi had to help me, but no big deal. It was so peaceful just to sit next right to Venerable Mahagosananda. So, Again, I could see what one person's strong metta can do. Venerable Mahagosananda, you know, through his many years of practice, he came to see that the actual danger and enemy is actually within. You know, he came to see that it is the negative mental states that are actually causing so much trouble, so much misery. As I said, during the time when thousands, hundreds of thousands of Cambodians fled the terrible Holocaust conducted by Pol Pot, Venerable Mahagosananda went to one of the huge refugee camps uh, across the Thai border. And people who managed 
get out of the country, you know, everybody had lost members of their family, their fathers, their uncles, their brothers, their mothers, uh, and so on. And they had lost their homes, their villages, and the temples, uh, the monasteries had been destroyed. And so when Venerable Mahagosananda went to that refugee camp, he announced that on the following day there would be uh, a Buddhist ceremony and everybody who wanted to join was welcome to do so. Buddhism had been desecrated by Pol Pot and so people wondered if anybody would go. But then, of course, the next day, over 10,000 refugees went to that place where this ceremony was going to be held. It was really an enormous gathering. And they had erected a little uh, stage, and the chair was there, and Venerable Mahagosananda sat there on the chair. And at the beginning, for some time, he just sat there in silence. Only then, after some time, he started to chant the invocations that usually start a Buddhist ceremony. And people started weeping. We must understand, they had been, they had been through so much sorrow, so much difficulty, so much terror, they were traumatized. And so for them, just to hear the sound of those familiar chants was so precious. And then everybody, of course, wondered what Venerable Mahagosananda was going to say. So what could one possibly say to such a group of people? And then what he did next was to begin repeating a verse from the Dhammapada. It's the following verse that we have mentioned already a few times. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Over and over, Venerable Mahagosananda chanted this verse. And again, we must remember that these were people who had as much cause to hate as anyone on earth. But yet, there he sat, repeating the verse over and over and over again. And as he was repeating it, one by one, people started to join, join in repeating this verse. <clears throat> and within a short time, there were these more than 10,000 people chanting in unison, hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone, it will cease. This is an eternal law. So having Venerable Mahagosananda as a strong leader, people could join these words. They must have known 
intuitively that this was true and this was actually the only way to heal the deep wounds. Although their rational mind still wanted to be angry at Pol Pot and uh, the Khmer Rouge. Another <clears throat> encounter, I, personal encounter I had with Venerable Mahagosananda that was in 2005. At that time, I was teaching one month at the Forest Refuge, which is the long-term meditation center, which is part of IMS, the big meditation center in Barrie, Massachusetts, near Boston, in the States. So while I was teaching there, a friend of mine invited me for Venerable Mahagosananda's 76th birthday party. Well, as much as it can be a party for a monk. Because not so far from the IMS, there is a small Cambodian temple. And by that time, Venerable Mahagosananda lived there. And as I found out, by that time, Venerable Mahagosananda already suffered from Alzheimer dementia. So for that celebration in the garden on the compound, they had erected a big tent with a little stage. And Venerable Mahagosananda sat on that stage on a chair. And during the whole ceremony, he was just sitting there. You know, it was other monks, other people who gave speeches, who gave Dhamma talks, who gave the precepts. But it was just so lovely to have the presence of him sitting there. And then at the very end of the ceremony, everybody could go up, pass in front of him, and there were two bowls in front of him. One was full of rose petals, and then there was a bowl filled with a bit of water. And so one could take some of the rose petals and then let them drop on his hands, which were kept over the bowl. And in the Cambodian tradition, this is a sign of wishing uh, a person well, of wishing um, a long life. And then when the official ceremony had ended, this friend said, well, I want to introduce you to one of the Cambodian ladies here. So she, he introduced me to her and she told me her story, like what she experienced in Cambodia, how she uh, fled the country. And it was an atrocious story. I could hardly believe it, but I heard it uh, from her, herself. So at one stage in Cambodia, she was thrown into a pit where they had thrown dead people, but she was still alive. So she, they threw her in there and then covered everything with earth. But she did not die, and she said, 
you know, there, being covered with the earth, lying on these corpses, the devas came and dropped me drops of water into my mouth. And somehow, after some time, she was able to rescue herself, get out of that pit. But then, when the soldiers saw that she was still alive, walking around, they took a big knife and cut out two big pieces of flesh in her thigh and on her buttock. And, you know, she had no opportunity to see a doctor to get medical help or treatment. And, of course, the soldiers thought, you know, in the Cambodian climate, hot and humid, she would die of an infection. But she said, you know, every night the devas came and they treated my wound. So she didn't get an infection, infection, she didn't die. And somehow she could flee to Thailand. And then from Thailand um, she could move on to the USA. And while she was relating her story to me, you know, there was not the most subtle trace of anger or ill will in her voice or in her whole way of telling the story. And finishing uh, her story, she just made a step forward and gave me a big hug. And this was the most intense and the most loving hug I ever received. It was simply overwhelming. And so with that, it was clear. She had taken Venerable Mahagosananda's advice to heart. She had replaced the hatred by love, by metta-love. And she had understood that for her own sake, for her own mental and physical well-being, there was no other choice than letting go of the hatred and the anger and to fill the heart with loving-kindness. So whether we call it metta or loving-kindness or benevolence or whether we call it forgiveness, a loving, kind, forgiving heart has the power to appease the burning fires of aversion, hatred, enmity, and all the other forms of dosa. As the Buddha had said, if you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving-kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards this person can be removed. So may we all be able to remember and to follow the Buddha's advice of removing a grudge or any form of dosa by cultivating loving-kindness. So may we always be able to live with metta, to abide in loving-kindness in all our actions of body, speech and mind and do this for the benefit of all living beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.